Hello, boys and girls. I'm Dr. John, and I'm so happy to welcome you back to the Children's Story Hour. I have Auntie Sue here with me. Hello, Auntie Sue. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. And I'm so happy to be here and waiting to hear the next exciting story. You know, boys and girls, Auntie Sue and I can just imagine you all around the world sitting down in a comfortable chair, listening and waiting for the next story. We're going to hear a story from Auntie Cecily. Her real name is Cecily Harker. And you might have seen her. She comes on every week on A Day with the King, and she is one of our presenters. And, you know, she is a very interesting person because she loves pets, and she had a little pet brush-tailed possum. That's in a little Australian animal, and it had a name. It was called Libby. It was an orphan, and it shared part of its life with Cecily and her husband, Barry, and we're going to hear a fascinating story about Libby the brush-tailed possum. You might like to write to us, and Auntie Sue has some addresses and contact details, and if you can't write them down, quickly call Mum and Dad, give them a pencil and a piece of paper, and they will write down the details. Are you ready, Auntie Sue? Yes, you can write to us at Children's Story Hour, 3ABN Australia Radio, P.O. Box 752, Morissette 2264, New South Wales, Australia. Or email us at radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. You can also check us out at the radio page on the 3ABN Australia website. The web address is www.3abnaustralia.org.au. Auntie Sue, I think it would be nice if we had a little prayer. Thank you. Dear Lord, thank you so much that we can come to you today. Thank you for giving us ears to listen and hearts to receive your word. Now we will leave ourselves in your care and keeping. For Jesus' sake, amen. And so, boys and girls, welcome to the Children's Story Hour. And sit tight and listen to the stories. Hi, girls and boys. This is Uncle Alan with today's story, Tim's Train Set. Tim had been saving up for weeks. All his pocket money had gone into a little box, which he kept in a very secret place. Nobody could talk him into spending any of it. He loved sweets and crisps and ice cream, but he wouldn't buy any. He was saving his money. He was saving up for Christmas. This year he told himself he would buy presents for everybody that would really take them by surprise. Dad, Mum, Zoe, Kevin, their eyes would pop out when they saw the presents he had bought for them. All that was before he walked past the window of the big toy shop. There at the centre of the display was a beautiful train set, complete with red engine, tender, passenger and mail coaches and a guard's van. There was a signal box, a station 
and of course rails. But it was the big, beautiful red engine that really caught Tim's attention. He had never seen anything like it. It was just what he'd hoped for all his life and more. He couldn't bear the thought that somebody else might buy it. He really, really wanted it. But where could he get the money from? He hadn't any money. Or had he? Suddenly he thought of his savings box in the secret place and the money that was inside it. He hurried home and went straight to that secret place. He opened the box. He poured the money out on the floor. What a heap! He had saved more than he'd thought. He began to count it. Guess what? There was just enough to buy that train set. Trying not to think about anything else, he ran back to the toy shop. Fantastic! It was still in the window. No one had bought it. And there it was, red engine, tender, passenger and mail coaches, station, the lot. Tim went inside the shop and found the counter in front of the train sets. I want a train set like the one in the shop window, he said. It's very expensive, said the lady assistant, giving Tim a second look. Have you got enough money? Oh, yes, said Tim proudly. I've got stacks of money. I've been saving up for weeks and weeks. All right, said the lady. I'll put it in a box and wrap it up for you. Thanks, said Tim, pouring the money onto the counter from the paper bag he had brought it in. He could hardly wait to get his hands on that train set. And then, best of all, to set it up at home and see it working. When the parcel had been wrapped, the lady handed it to Tim. It was his. His! He hurried home, opened the parcel, and set up the train set on the floor of his bedroom. Soon the red engine was running round the track, past the signal box, past the station. Then Mum came in. Hey, she exclaimed, where did you get that from? This is my new train set, said Tim, picking the engine up from the track, its wheels still spinning. Watch how fast it goes. Isn't it great? Did somebody give it to you? No, I bought it. Bought it, cried Mum. I thought you were saving up for Christmas. Uh, I was, muttered Tim, but um, silence fell, and so did Tim's face. Then it hit him. He didn't have any money for the Christmas presents he'd planned to buy. Mum, a wise look in her eye, left the room without another word. All alone, Tim started to think it over. He thought of Christmas morning. Mum, Dad, Zoe and Kevin. They would be opening Christmas presents from everyone else except him. All of a sudden he felt horribly mean. He left the train set and walked over to the window. If only he hadn't bought that train set. But what could he do now? There was no time to save up again. Maybe the lady at the shop would take the train set back. He packed everything back into the box. Red engine, tender, passenger and mail coaches, station, all of it. Back he went to the big shop. But the lady would not take it back. She thought Tim must have broken something. Tim was in a panic. What could he do now? Would anyone buy it? Who? He asked around among his friends, but no one had enough money. 
Everyone was saving up to buy Christmas presents too. Then he had a bright idea. Why not try Uncle Sam? Uncle Sam had always been good to him. Tim walked over to Uncle Sam's house, the box under his arm. Uncle Sam, he said, his eyes cast down, would you, um, would you like to buy a train? Uncle Sam roared with laughter. No, he didn't want to buy a train, certainly not just before Christmas. Smiling shyly, Tim said, I mean a toy train. Oh, a toy train, said Uncle Sam. That's different. Let's have a look at it. Tim opened the box. As Uncle Sam looked everything over, Tim explained all about it and why he needed the money back. All right, I'll buy it from you, said Uncle Sam, giving him the money. Tim was so thrilled, he ran all the way home. He had his money back, all of it. Without further delay, he went to town and bought the presents he'd planned for Mum, Dad, Zoe and Kevin, and Uncle Sam, of course, now that he had been so kind. On the way back home, he felt so much better. In fact, he thought he had never been this happy before in his whole life. When Christmas morning came, that was best of all. Everyone was so pleased with their presence. Tim knew he'd done the right thing. And no, in case you're wondering, Tim didn't find a box with a train set in it among his presents. Funny thing, though, months later, when Tim's birthday came around, the postman brought a parcel with a familiar size and shape. The handwriting on the label was Uncle Sam's, for sure. Maybe you can guess what was inside. Boys and girls, it's Auntie Cecily back again. I hope you're enjoying our story about Libby so far. Today we're going to read Chapter 3, Lost and Found. As we woke the next morning, our thoughts turned to Libby. We rose quickly and headed for the gum trees in our front yard. We surveyed every branch of the trees near the front of our house but could not see Libby anywhere. We called him, but of course that was no use. He didn't know his own name yet. We looked carefully around other gum trees a little further away, but there was still no sign of Libby. We gazed out over our property, not sure where to look next. There were hundreds of gum trees and saplings. Some of our trees were over 30 metres or 100 feet high. Several of them had hollow branches. If Libby is still alive and safe, he's probably gone to bed for the day, said Barry. Do you think he has found a hollow log to curl up in, I asked. Hopefully, replied Barry. We haven't any more time to look this morning. We have to get ready for work. We'll have another look tonight when the possums come out to feed. It was lonely eating the pawpaw without Libby there to share it. How could we get so attached to the little fellow in such a short time? We were concerned for his safety. 
There were many dangers in the bush for orphaned baby possums. Snakes also like to curl up in the hollow of logs, and some snakes eat baby possums. Then there were the other big possums in the bush. They protect their territory fiercely against strange possums. Libby might mistake them for friends and innocently wander up to them to say hello. He could be scratched and bitten if he approached them too closely. That's why baby possums need their mother. Mother possums protect their young from other animals, especially predators, animals that attack and eat other animals. Meanwhile, all we could do was follow some good advice, like Psalm 37, verse 3 and 4. Trust in the Lord and do good. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he will give thee the desires of thine heart. We were only trying to do good when we lost Libby. He wasn't being naughty. He simply did what possums do by instinct. We had to wait out the day patiently and see what the evening would bring. The day passed so slowly for me. I couldn't wait to get back home. As we set off from work in the late afternoon, we could see the orange-red sun slipping down behind the distant hills of Harvey's Range. The birds were quietly settling in their nests and many of the animals in the bush had retreated to the quiet spot they had made their home. However, it was a busy time for some animals and birds. Native animals of Australia, like kangaroos and wallabies, a close relative of the kangaroo, like to feed at sunset. We often saw them feeding on tender grass shoots growing on the side of the road. We slowed down when we saw a wallaby or kangaroo feeding near the roadside ahead of us. They were not noted for their road sense. When a passing car startles them, they sometimes jump across the road in front of the car instead of jumping away from the cars and into the bush. When we arrived home and unpacked the car, we rested in our comfortable chairs on the front veranda, or porch. This was a favourite spot for us. Our bush friends knew we were in the habit of doing this and some of them would drop in to say hello while we were sitting there. As the stars started to twinkle in the evening sky, we heard a gentle rustling in the trees nearby. Do you think that could be Libby? I asked hopefully. Let's have a look, replied Barry. I've got a torch. If he is there, we should be able to see his bright, shining eyes. We began our search at the tree where we last saw Libby, but couldn't see him. We looked in the gum tree next to it, but couldn't see him there either. What's that? asked Barry. Something is moving on the branch of that gum tree. As Barry shone the torch back to the first tree we searched, Two sparkling eyes shone out from behind a gum blossom. It's Libby, I exclaimed. Let's be careful not to frighten him or we'll lose him again, cautioned Barry. I'll fetch some pawpaw. He loved that last night. That might distract him while I pick him up, I said. OK, agreed Barry. I'll keep an eye on him while you get some food. I disappeared into the house and returned quickly with some pawpaw. Here, Libby, try some of this, I coaxed. 
Libby didn't seem to be afraid when the delicious food was placed within easy reach. To our surprise, he didn't struggle when I picked him up. He sat on my hand and continued to devour the pawpaw that I offered him. We walked back slowly and carefully into the house with Libby on my hand. I'll shut the doors in case he tries to run away again, Barry said. And I'll see if Libby will eat some pawpaw off this plastic lid, I added. So I put Libby down on the shelf in front of the pawpaw. He seemed to know exactly what to do, eating the pawpaw enthusiastically, then cleaning his messy front paws by licking them thoroughly, just like a cat does. What are we going to do with him now, I asked. Libby will insist on his freedom, so there's no point in putting him back in the box. He'll want to run around and play. Why don't we line the box with a rug and put a soft toy teddy in there as well? He might think the teddy is like his mother, suggested Barry. And if we put the box on top of the wardrobe, he might be content to go and stay there, because it's as high as he can go, I added. It's worth a try, said Barry. I'll pick a few juicy gum leaves and put them in the box. Libby can eat them for dessert. So we set Libby up in his new bedroom and checked the doors and fly screens on the open windows to ensure that he couldn't get out of the house. He nibbled contentedly at the gum leaves. He didn't even seem to mind a gentle goodnight pat. We went to bed much happier than we were at the same time the previous night, we turned the lights out and settled down to sleep. Just as we were dozing off, we heard a plop sound, followed by quick little pitter-patter noises. What's that? I startled. It must be Libby. It's our bedtime, but unfortunately it's his playtime. Just ignore him, Barry replied. He can't get out of the house. We'll worry about what he's been up to in the morning. Boys and girls, it's story time, and this is Uncle Gordon to bring you another story from the South Pacific Islands. Let's go back to 1959. I was teaching with the government schools up in Brisbane, Queensland, and I'd been there for five years, and I'd given up hope of ever becoming a missionary. But then I got a telegram from a headquarters office in Sydney which said, would I be willing to accept a call to Samoa as the principal of a school in Savai? I couldn't get an answer back to them quick enough. I said, yes, I'd be delighted. I hadn't even asked my wife if she was willing to go. But she knew what it was to have a husband that had a hankering for the mission fields. And so uh, we sent in the call, yes, we'll accept that uh, invitation. Well, in January, I had to go on my own because my wife was expecting our second child. And she was to remain in, in Brisbane until the child was born and she would follow later. I was so excited when I boarded the plane in Sydney and headed for... Fiji and on to Samoa. It was quite an experience. I'd never been overseas before, never been in a big plane. But uh, finally landing in Faliolo in Samoa, 
I was thrilled to be able to see the people, see the places. What a delightful and beautiful place it is. Pastor Jenkins was the president there, and after spending a couple of days with him, I was taken across to the island of Safai and left there to run a school. When I got to Sufunga, which is the village where the school was, there was uh, little to offer in the way of uh, classrooms. I had no idea how many students would turn up or if any would turn up. And then on the Monday, there arrived at the school 184 students and I was the teacher. I didn't know what to do. I got around and I found a few people who'd been to school and learned how to read and write and I started making them teachers of grades one and two, three and four, five and six. And I ended up with a class of 51 teaching up to grade nine. When I was teaching there, there was a young lady who came to our school. I'd met when I was in Apollo, the capital. I'd been over visiting, getting some material for our class. And uh, the youth leader had spoken with me and said, and he introduced to me this young lady and said, I want you to keep a watch over her. She's having to return to her homeland. She's not well. It so happened that when I returned on the boat that uh, that uh, next day to go back to Savai, that she was on that same boat. I talked with her. She didn't seem to want to talk with me, but eventually she did. I found out that she was not a well girl. She'd been at Fulton College and had uh, not been able to raise the funds to go back to school, so they sent her down in our church uh, teaching program in Pangapango, but had been refused to continue teaching there because she had TB, tuberculosis, very serious case. That's why she was heading home. She was very discouraged, felt that the Lord had left her, and uh, so she was back in her village. But she came every Sabbath for the next five Sabbaths and uh, didn't seem to enjoy it much. But finally I spoke with her and she told me the situation. I said, well, let's pray about it. Let's seek the Lord and ask him what he wants. And she said, I'm just going to end up in the villages here as a village girl doing nothing when I want to be a teacher. And as we said there, well, let's pray about it. And I had a little um, promise box, little cardboard promise box, and it had been given to me as I left the South Brisbane Church by one of the ladies there as a gift. And I always kept it in my office, and each morning when I'd have my devotions, I'd read from this promise box, and I'd push it across the table to her as she was sitting there opposite me, and I said, here, take one of these before we pray. And the text that she took out said, I am the Lord God that healeth thee. Well, I thought, that's amazing. We've just been talking about your sickness and the Lord's going to heal you. Well, she left that office feeling much better, felt that the Lord was still with her. And uh, within a few weeks, she had to go across to up here to have a medical examination again. This she had to do every three months. This was in September, and so she had to go. Well, she went across feeling very good about it. But when she came back, I could see she was very, very discouraged. I said, what's the problem? Oh, she said, they, they examined me and they said, you're very, very ill. You'll be lucky if you can 
see the light of day until December. Well, she felt she was going to die, but I said, no, the Lord said he would heal you. He didn't say when, but he did say he would heal you. And so uh, we prayed again, and uh, the Lord gave us more promises. And I got all the school students and their parents at home to every day remember this girl in prayer, and they did. But it was with leaden feet in, the, in November that she went back to the hospital in up here, and uh, she was examined, and the doctor said to her, well, you wait, and uh, we'll give you the information tomorrow. You must wait somewhere. So she stayed at our mission headquarters in up here, and on the next morning, the phone rang from the hospital, come quickly, you, you're needed up at the hospital. Oh, she thought, they're going to tell me the worst. So she went up, up to the hospital, and uh, the doctor examined her again, called in another doctor, and they both have examined her, and they're talking together, and finally they shook their heads and they said, we don't know what's the matter now, but you have no, no sign of the disease whatsoever. It's gone. How come we don't know? Well, she said, does that mean I can teach? And the doctors sort of looked at each other and said, well, if that's what you're supposed to be doing, yes, you can. And will you give me a, a notice on it? So they wrote her clearance, and she ran back to the mission station. She said, I can teach. I can go and be a missionary again. I can be a teacher. Well, she came back to our home very, very happy and so excited that uh, she could now serve the Lord as a teacher. She went back to, to Fulton College, graduated, came back and was an excellent teacher, very uh, keen in her knowledge of the things that students need to know. So much so that she was recognised by the government as one of the best teachers. And the government said, we want her to do adult education throughout the community. We'll send her overseas to get further education and we'll bring her back here and she can wander through all the villages wherever she's needed and teach in health and welfare and child nurture and everything like that. Oh, I said, if that happens, we'll lose her. No, no, they said, we'll have her educated, but you can make sure she's paid for and it'll be under your direction. Well, this girl served the church by going from village to village, place to place, teaching education, teaching welfare, child care, health, cooking, nurturing in that way. It was a wonderful occasion. One day a young man who was a chief in a village, he saw her and he thought, my, she'd make a wonderful wife, I, I, I wonder. And so she, he finally plucked up enough courage and he asked her, would, would she marry him? And he finally, she finally agreed. And they were married and they had children. And the last I knew of her, she was still teaching She'd gone back to Lullavaya and was teaching there in Lullavaya, but a very powerful witness for the Lord. The Lord had told her not only would he heal her, but he'd make her part of the family, and he did. She had no family of her own. Her mother died when she was a baby, and her father had been killed in a fight. But now she had her home, her family, a husband, and good work. The Lord never lets us down. When he makes promises, he never lets us down either. God bless you.
boys and girls, Sophie Lee here. I'm so glad you have come back to join me in listening to another segment of the book, Ellen, the Girl with Two Angels, written by Mabel R. Miller. In minutes, Ellen and Bossy headed back to the barn. Mud covered both of them, but the girl and cow had never been happier. One full morning, the school bell rang. Ellen and Elizabeth were so excited that they nearly ran to their first day of school. Robert, now nine, walked with the twins and so did Sarah, who was eleven. As they neared the town, the dusty path turned into a sidewalk made from boards. Then they crossed a grassy little park and there in front of them stood Brackett Street School. The school rose two storeys into the air. The older children's rooms were upstairs and the younger children studied downstairs. The first three grades met in a big room with long tables and benches. Alan and Elizabeth found a bench low enough for their feet to touch the floor. The kindly man-teacher sat on a chair on a high platform behind a big desk. When all the children had found benches, he stood up. We have a few rules you must obey, he said. We'll have absolutely no whispering in my class, no laughing or moving about either. Keep your eyes on your books and you'll have no problems. Ellen loved school. She especially enjoyed learning to read. The teacher allowed each child to learn at their own speed, so some read through three reading books while others read only one. In only a few months, Ellen and Elizabeth read with the second graders. When Ellen and Elizabeth reached third grade, the teacher sent them upstairs to study with the older students. The Brackett Street School never had enough textbooks for each child, so everyone shared. Sometimes the teacher asked one of the students who read well to read the lesson aloud to the other children while he taught another class. Soon he asked Ellen to read the lessons to her classmates. Sometimes the teacher downstairs sent for Ellen to come and read to the beginners. Ellen enjoyed this. It kept her busy. Round-faced Ellen with her sparkling eyes and rosy cheeks enjoyed every minute of school. She enjoyed helping the other students and she also enjoyed playing with her friends at recess and noon. When school was out, the twins hurried home. They had chores to do. One day, Mama asked Ellen to dust the furniture in the front room. Ellen had planned to go out under the big tree and read for a while. Why do I have to do everything, she muttered quietly, so Mama wouldn't hear. I help a lot around here, and this is going to be my time. Then she hurried out the door. A moment later, Mama appeared in the doorway. Ellen, come back here and tell me what you just said. Ellen didn't want to. She didn't want Mama to know about her crosswords. Ellen, please come here. Slowly, Ellen shuffled through the door. Tell me right now, Ellen, Mama repeated. Ellen bowed her head and blushed as she said the spiteful words again. They sounded awful now. Mama held out her arms to Ellen and they prayed, asking God to forgive her. Then Ellen did the dusting without being asked again. When she finally was able to read her book in the shade, she enjoyed it because she had obeyed Mama. Every morning, Ellen remembered to ask Jesus to help her be kind, good and cheerful. Chapter 3. What One Stone Did Father was taking a trip to Georgia to sell hats. He also had to buy materials to make more hats. The Harmon family went with him to the Portland Hotel to see him off on the stagecoach. A stagecoach was a beautiful carriage pulled by six horses. The horses ran swiftly and every few miles the stagecoach stopped to get fresh horses, leaving the first six to rest. 
The family listened to hear the stagecoach horn. Listen, Robert shouted. I hear it. It's coming. Almost at once, the six horses came prancing around the bend in the road, pulling a fancy stagecoach trimmed with gold and yellow. They stopped in front of the hotel. Ellen thought she'd never seen a prettier sight. The driver jumped from his high seat to the ground. He hurried to the back of the coach and climbed the ladder. Papa handed up his boxes of hats for the driver to store away on top of the stagecoach. Papa turned to his family and hugged each one, whispering blessings in each ear as he did. The driver had already jumped into his high seat, so Papa hurried inside to his seat. Help your mother, Papa shouted back as the horses dashed down the road in a cloud of dust. Mama, how long will Papa be gone? Ellen asked when the stagecoach had gone around a bend and disappeared. She swallowed hard to keep the tears from her eyes. Honey, Mama said softly, it's over 1,000 miles to Georgia. Papa will be back in maybe two or three or four months. I know that is a long time, but we'll work together, won't we? Yes, Mama, we will, the children agreed. The days and weeks passed as the children went to school and helped Mama at home. Ellen and Elizabeth were now nine years old and able to be a big help to their mother. But nothing was the same without Papa. One afternoon, the twins and a classmate came out of school and started home. Singing hand in hand, they started across the park. Suddenly, they heard the angry voice of a 13-year-old girl behind them. She was yelling and threatening to hurt them. This frightened the little girls, so they ran as fast as they could. For a few minutes, they didn't hear the voice, but soon the angry shout started again, this time closer than before. Ellen looked back to see how close the angry girl was. At that very moment, the older girl held a stone at Ellen, Elizabeth and her friend. The stone flew through the air and hit Ellen right in the face. Ellen fell to the ground. The stone had knocked her out. Blood soon covered her face and dress. Well, sometimes on the surface, we're not who we really are either. 
We could be having a bad day and we treat people unkindly. Yeah, you're right there, Mr. Tammy. And even though we aren't really like that all of the time, that's sometimes who people think we really are. Especially if it's the first time they have ever met us. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty sad, Mrs. Tammy. But do you know the greatest thing? It's this. Jesus knows our heart. Just like he knows there's more to an iceberg than just a bit sticking up above the ocean. That's right, Ranger Dan. Jesus always sees who we really are. He looks underneath the surface. Underneath the surface is where God sees you and me. Underneath the surface in your heart he finds a key to the something that makes you you and the something that makes me me. There's something hidden deep inside my personality. He'll find out who I really am, who it is I want to be. God always finds a real me, the me I know he wants to see. It's hidden deep inside of me, underneath the surface. Oh, an iceberg on the surface is not what it appears to be. It's not? The ice we see above the top is not the reality. Well, what's the truth? What we see above the ocean, well, that's really just a tip. That's all? A great big mountain lies beneath that will take down any ship. Yes, I've got it. It's not until you dive down deep below you'll find the truth. That's right. First looks can be deceiving. We must search deeper for the proof. Underneath the surface is where God sees you and me. Underneath the surface in your heart he finds the key To the something that makes you you And the something that makes me me There's something hidden deep inside my personality He'll find out who I really am, who it is I want to be God always finds the real me The me I know he wants to see that's hidden deep inside of me Underneath the surface Well, sometimes on the surface We're not who we want to be That's right Sometimes we're shy Or mean or rough But that's not the reality Uh-uh And when we look into the mirror What we see is just a mess But when Jesus looks at of us. It's in our heart, he does the test. And if he sees that we love him with all our heart and soul and might, then he'll say, in his opinion, that we checked out all right. Underneath the surface is where God sees you and me. Underneath the surface in your heart he finds the key To the something that makes you you And the something that makes me me There's something hidden deep inside my personality He'll find out who I really am, who it is 
I want to be. God always finds the real me. But me, I know he wants to see that's hidden deep inside of me. Underneath the surface. Boys and girls, I'm Auntie Nat. I'm glad you've come back to read the Bible with me. I hope you're ready. I hope you've got your Bibles ready. Auntie Nat is reading out of the New King James Version. And today we're going to continue our story about the birth of Jesus. Now we're going to be flipping between Matthew and Luke today because both these books of the Gospel talk about the birth of Jesus. And we are going to start in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 today. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to be put her away secretly. Now remember, boys and girls, last week we spoke about Mary, how she went to visit Elizabeth, and she was with Elizabeth for three months. So by the time she came back, her pregnancy would have been showing by now, and up to this point she hadn't spoken to anyone about what had happened to her, only Elizabeth knew. So now her husband-to-be, Joseph, has found out that she's pregnant, and he's very upset because he realises it's not his baby. And in those days, women like Mary were actually stoned to death. But Joseph, being a very kind man, wanted just to put her away and break off the engagement secretly so no harm came to Mary. Let's see what happens next. Verse 20. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. So boys and girls, after the dream, Joseph decided, okay, this is the Lord's will, and so he married Mary and took her into his household. Now boys and girls, we are going to go over to Luke And we're going to continue reading in chapter 2, verse 1. Okay, boys and girls, are you ready? Have you found Luke 2? Okay, let's start in 1. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, every one to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, 
to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. Now, boys and girls, you can actually have a look at this prophecy in Micah 5, 2, which is in the Old Testament, which prophesies that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Also, Mary and Joseph had to travel to Bethlehem from Nazareth, which was about 60 miles, which is about 100 kilometres. So could you imagine that long journey with Mary on the donkey and Joseph walking beside her, walking for 100 kilometres? It probably took around about three days and it would have been a very challenging journey. Let's continue in verse 6. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now when they arrived at Bethlehem, boys and girls, they traversed the whole street of Bethlehem and there was nowhere for them to stay. Imagine if there was a census, there would have been a lot of people returning to their country towns and villages. And so there were a lot of people in Bethlehem at the time and there was just no room. And the kind innkeeper gave them room in his stable, which was behind his inn, where all the animals were kept. So can you imagine them having a baby in a stable? It would have been a bit of a smelly place. And just to think that Jesus, the King of King, the Lord of Lords, who came from his heavenly kingdom, where he was adored by his angels up up in heaven, and he came down and he chose to be born in a stable to the humblest and poorest of parents. And I just think what Jesus did for us was marvellous. And I just ask now that you think about this story and perhaps invite Jesus into your heart and just think of the wonderful thing that he did for us. Thank you for reading with us today. Hello boys and girls, it's Dr. John back here with another story by Eric B. Hare from his book, Jungle Stories, And this one is called The Dispensary Makes Friends. The dispensary is like a very, very, very small hospital, just one room with some medicines. We couldn't do without our dispensary. It paves the way and makes it possible to follow up with the preaching of the gospel. I remember once when we first started work, We wanted to visit six or seven villages on the opposite side of the river. We planned to cross the river by canoe, leaving our bundles and the ladies by the riverbank while we men went to the nearest village to hire a bullock cart. Now these were excellent plans and they worked fine until we got to the first house in the nearest village. I knocked on the door. Auntie inside had never heard a noise like that before in all her life. It didn't sound like a chicken scratching or like a dog chewing a bone. She thought she would go and have a look and see just what the noise was. And there she saw 
a white man. She had never had a white man call at her house before, and she didn't just know what she ought to do. She didn't know what the white man would do either, so she threw up her hands and screamed. The children inside heard the screaming and came running to the door. There they too saw the white man and thought they had better scream. Then the dogs began to bark, and the pig started to grunt. The woman next door looked out to see what the commotion was all about, saw the white man, and then joined the chorus. Then more dogs, and more children joined in until the whole village was in an uproar. I said to the evangelist who accompanied me, how are we ever going to get a bullock cart in this village? He replied, Tara, let us go back to the river bank as quickly as we can. I felt this was a good advice, and we hurried back to where the ladies were minding the luggage. Let us carry our things as far as we can, said Miss Gibbs, our pioneer dispensary nurse. After she had heard of our dismal experience, and we might find a bullock cart on the way. So we cut a few bamboos and, stringing our bundles on the poles, set off in single file. Now, you know boys are much braver than ladies, aren't we? But you also know that all the books on etiquette say that the ladies must go first. So when I thought about going back to that village, I thought it would be much nicer to be courteous and courageous. So I put the ladies first and I came at the end. The nearer we came to the village, the farther I kept to the rear because I knew what a terrible noise awaited us as soon as we came to the village. It was just as I imagined. I could see through the trees as we approached all the children and the pigs and the dogs standing, waiting, half expectant that some other excitement was coming their way. I shut my eyes and put my fingers in my ears from sheer dread and waited. But nothing happened. I opened my eyes again and took my fingers from my ears. And what do you think I saw? Right there in front of the company of children was a little girl pointing to Miss Gibbs and saying, Oh, look, there's a dispensary mama who gave my daddy some medicine. Come and let us shake hands with her. In a minute, they had run up to the ladies and were saying, Won't you come up into my house? Then I became very brave and walked up closer. And before long, we were all seated in a nice bamboo house and not a scream, not a yell, not a bark. Then the little girl said, wait a minute until I go and call Daddy. And in a little while, he appeared on the scene and asked, you want a bullock cart? Of course, I have a cart. In a few minutes, he had caught his bullocks, harnessed them to his cart, and then took us and our bundles around visiting in the villages, and it didn't cost us a penny. Now you see why it is I say we couldn't get along without our dispensary, don't you? Some of our cases are very strange. One day I was in the dispensary and there were quite a number of patients there. They had sore eyes, ringworm, 
stomachache and all the other kinds of sicknesses our jungle people get. And I was treating them one by one when all of a sudden a man rushed in and said, Oh, Tara, come quick, come quick. A man has been stung. I said, All right, Uncle, just a moment. Until I finish with these few patients, then I'll come with you. When I was through, I washed my hands and thought, now what is good for stings? You know, ammonia is very good, so I put in the bottle of ammonia into my bag. And then I remembered that when I was a little boy, mother used to rub the bluing bag. Boys and girls, the bluing bag is what our grandmothers used to put in the washing machines to make our shirts nice and white. And it was good for treating bee stings. So I went over to the laundry and got a bluing bag. Then someone had told me that onion juice was good for stings. So in went an onion. Then away we went through the jungle to see the man who had been stung. Imagine my horror when I arrived at a little hut and found a man lying on the floor with his right arm nearly torn off at the shoulder. I turned to the man who had called me and said, Why didn't you tell me the truth? This man hasn't been stung. He's been almost murdered. Oh, no, he hasn't. Tata, he has been stung. But whatever in the world could sting a man like that, I asked. Why? He said, an elephant. Fancy being stung by an elephant. But you see, there is only one word in their language for sting. And whether it is a pin or a bee or an elephant, it is stung just the same. Well, it was good that we had other things in our medicine bag besides onions and bluing bags. And before long, we had the wound nicely washed up and bound up. And in a few weeks, the injured man was quite well again and became a very good friend. It is hard to make out from what some of our patients tell us just what is the matter with them. One day, a poor old man came to the dispensary and said, Please, have you got some medicine for my eye? What's the matter with it? I can't see out of it anymore. Oh, it's blind. Well, how did it happen? The man, about 35 years of age, dressed in a rough jacket and a loincloth, carrying a big basket on his back, moved up close and sat down on his heels and placed his load beside him and, taking a very deep breath, began to talk. Well, Sara, you see, it was like this. You see, two years ago, I had fever, and my head was hot and my stomach was hot, but my feet were cold, and one day I felt a little worse than usual, and discovered that the cold wind in my feet was gradually working its way up, do you see? And he stood up suddenly to show me how. Well, it came up and up till it came to the hot wind in my stomach and then made a terrible noise and I thought I would die for sure, but presently it went up and up. Then he traced its path with his finger and went right through my neck over my head and settled in my right eye, and I've been blind in an eye ever since. I wish you could give me some wind medicine. That would get rid of that hot and cold wind, divided up the cold wind and sent out through my feet again. I suppose you have a complete lot of all kinds of wind medicines? Now we had taken our nursing course at the sanitarium in Australia, but we had never heard of such a complicated blindness. 
And though we tried to explain what really was the matter and advised him to go to a hospital for an operation, he went away unconvinced to look a little longer for some kind of wind mixture to cure his eye. Special thanks go to Pacific Press for giving 3ABN Australia Radio permission to read on air a selection from Jungle Stories, written by Eric B. Hare, and Ellen, the Girl with Two Angels, written by Mabel R. Miller. Also, thanks goes to Stanbra Press for giving 3ABN Australia Radio permission to read a selection of stories from the set of books called Uncle Arthur's Best Bedtime Stories. And thanks to Remnant Publications for permission to read the Remnant Young Scholar Study Bible on air. We would also like to thank Daniel and Tammy Cinzio for allowing us to play their CD, Frozen Chosen, on air. For any other information about the Children's Story Hour, you can contact us at radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. Well, boys and girls, we have come to the end of the Children's Story Hour. On behalf of Auntie Sue, I would like to say goodbye, God bless you, and we'll see you again next week for another episode of the Children's Story Hour. 